The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. All right, so as you turn to Mark 7 and I try to figure out what in the world I'm doing, let me just go ahead and give you a heads up that this morning's message might be a little bit different from what you're used to. It's going to be a little bit more theological, perhaps a bit more doctrinal in nature. It might even be shorter than usual. Hey, now. But I make no promises. Okay, so it's going to be a little bit different this morning because we're going to tackle an issue that I don't know if we've had the occasion to address extensively yet. But there's something of an elephant in the room here. Quite a large elephant, actually. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not of Jewish descent. In fact, very few of us worldwide are. But I'm not of Jewish descent. And here's the problem with that. The problem is the fact that the Messiah who would himself be of the lineage of Abraham, was expected to usher in an era of political, social, economic prosperity for his people, for the nation of Israel, right? But I'm not Jewish, and so I'm not really connecting too well with that. His mission was to benefit God's people. And and who were God's people? Well, the Jews, right? I mean, we just finished talking about how God was working through the nation of Israel. But I'm not a part of that. And so the question for us today becomes this. Why would a group of non-Jewish people, especially since we're not even proselytes of Judaism, why would we come together and celebrate the ministry of Jesus, a ministry commonly believed in Jesus' day to be for his people? I mean, that's why they named him Jesus, right? For he shall save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 121. It says that he's going to save his people from their sins. And who are his people? Well, the Jews, right? It doesn't say he's going to save the American church from their sins. It doesn't say he's going to save Americans or Christians. Scripture says he's going to save his people. But Jesus was Jewish. I'm not. Most of you are. And so why are we here? So today's text is exciting because we're going to get a preview of what Jesus is doing 2,000 years ago, we're going to get an idea of how Jesus feels, not just about his own people, but those of us like myself who aren't Jewish. As many of you know, the dynamic between ethnic Israel, those who were physically descendants of Abraham, and the church, the relationship between the two, has long been hotly debated among Christians. You've got those who believe that because of Israel's constant disobedience, that they had been cast aside from all the blessings of God, that God was totally done with them, and that all of God's favor was going to rest on this thing called the church. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that believe that God has kind of put his work with Israel on hold, and now he has ushered in this thing called the church, and then when he's done doing what he's doing with the church, then he's going to kind of leave that and then go back over here and resume work with Israel, which kind of makes the church, it's considered a parenthetical, but it's almost an afterthought. More of a, okay, well, I I can't get my way with the Jews, so I'm going to run over here and create this thing called the church, and when I'm done with that, I'm going to go back over here. And and then you have positions everywhere in the middle, and then you have positions on the extremes that are so far removed from anything scriptural that they're really outside the range of biblical orthodoxy. And the thing is, everyone in here, whether you know it or not, fits somewhere on that spectrum. Which means that everyone here is either into 
covenant theology, new covenant theology, progressive covenantalism, progressive dispensationalism, classic dispensationalism, or ultra-dispensationalism, or somewhere in the extremes. And then, depending on where you are there, that's going uh, to really uh, change how you interpret Old Testament prophecy, and it's going to make you one of the amillennialists, or the postmillennialists, or the premillennialists. Ain't theology great? All right, now some of you are sitting there wondering, okay, so where does Life Journey Church fall into the mix? But I would imagine that more of you are wondering, okay, how long has Richard been speaking in tongues, and do we have an interpreter on hand? All right, because I'm throwing out a lot of words that you have never heard before in the context of Life Journey Church. So forgive me for carpet bombing you with the $2 theological terms, but the point that I make is this. We can take an interpretive framework and place it on top of Scripture and distort everything we read to make sure it filters through properly. But Walt and I labor hard to just go to the text, look at the text for what it says, make sure that it does agree with Scripture elsewhere, but really not take any kind of agenda into it. And so my prayer for us this morning is that as we go into Mark chapter 7, that we can do it with open, active minds, so that we can see what it is that God has revealed to His church through the writing of Mark, 2,000 years ago. Because that's important, right? I mean, if the Jews are God's chosen people and we're not Jews, then does that not mean that we're not chosen by God? And if we're not chosen by God, then why are we here celebrating God? And if the Messiah wasn't for Jews and Gentiles, but only for the Jews, then, then really we're just kind of, I mean, we're a bunch of pagans that are throwing ourselves into this religion that wasn't meant for us in the first place. And that's probably not good. And so we're going to be able to look at Scripture today and see how it is that we wound up where we are now 2,000 years later. We have to figure out if we're wasting our time if God's love was only intended for Israel. To the Gentile Christians in Rome who are losing their life for the stand that they've taken for Jesus when this book is being penned some 25 years after the resurrection, they're having to ask themselves, are we even... Are we supposed to be following this Jewish Messiah in the first place? And that's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Now, we've all grown up in church, or those of us who grew up in church, we've heard, okay, well, Jesus came for everybody, and Jesus came for the Jews and then the Gentiles. And and so most of us have this idea in our mind that, yeah, what we're doing is legit. But how many of us have grown up believing something to be true only to find out that it's not? Probably a whole lot of us. I could make references to some various holidays, but I don't want to bust any bubbles this morning, so I'm not going to do that. But we spent the last eight months looking at Jesus and his people, looking at Jesus and his Jews, looking at the ministry of Christ among his people. And so far, there's been nothing about this thing we call the church. And so, yeah, I think that's a pretty big elephant that we need to look at this morning. This is exciting stuff. So as we go into the text, let's start in Mark chapter 7, verse 31. We find that Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, or Sidon, however you pronounce that, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And so the idea that Mark is communicating here is that Jesus, after healing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, leaves that region of Tyre and he goes north about 30 miles to this coastal city called Sidon. And then from there he travels, I should have got a map up there, He travels, for those of you that are bored already and looking at your maps in the back of your Bible, you'll know what I'm talking about. He goes southeasterly back down into the region of the Decapolis, which was the ten cities or so on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
And so in the space of one verse here, where Mark just says he returned from there, went through Sidon, and then wound back up in the Decapolis, he covers about 100 miles of Jesus walking on foot. And Jesus wasn't exactly a fast walker. He went places, but he went there for a reason, right? He liked to park it, teach a little bit, and then move. And so some scholars speculate that this one verse here covers months of Jesus' ministry, which is kind of cool. Because that means that Mark has chosen, as he's writing this all, some 25 years after it happened, he's choosing to go from the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter to this specific instance. And remember that, because context is our friend, right? You can't just take an isolated passage and try to figure out what's being communicated without seeing what comes before it and what comes after it. And so remember, Jesus is in this region. It's not his first time there. I think the last time we saw him working extensively, he had cast some demons out of some men. One of them wanted to follow Christ, and Jesus said, no, stay here and tell your friends what I've done. And so Jesus is no stranger here. It says that when he got there, verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Jesus' reputation had made it there long before he did. So you have a rabbi, 12 disciples showing up in the area, yeah, people know who he is, and so they're bringing people, as they always did, to be healed by Jesus. But this is a special event, this deaf and mute man who was brought to Jesus. And how Jesus responds to him is not only going to tell us how Jesus felt about this individual, but we're going to be able to see a little bit of how Jesus feels about us 2,000 years later. We see first that Jesus took him aside from the crowd privately. Now, this is pretty neat, but, but before we continue, we need to really put ourselves into the shoes of this guy. All right, he can't hear. He's got this speech impediment, and so he can't communicate verbally. Some people would think that because it's a speech impediment and not a complete mute that perhaps he had hearing at some point in his life, and now it was gone. Maybe it was a childhood disease. Whatever it is, he's now deaf. He can't communicate verbally, and Jesus is going to do something pretty neat. But you have to realize, 2,000 years ago, if you were somebody who was deaf and couldn't speak right, they didn't have the same kind of compassion on you 2,000 years ago that we have now, especially in the minds of the Pharisees. And we're not dealing with Pharisees here, we're dealing with, with, with Gentiles, but, but it's even worse for them. But the Pharisees specifically thought that if you were deaf or if you had a speech impediment, it was because you were a great sinner and God was judging you. Or perhaps your parents had royally messed up. But either way, if you had that kind of deformity or that deficit in your speech and in your hearing, the Jews thought, okay, well, this guy is beneath the wrath of God, and therefore, he's nothing better than a Gentile to us. For the Gentiles, it was even worse. They believed that if you were deaf or if you couldn't speak, that you weren't right in the mind because you couldn't communicate. You couldn't speak on the same level, and they, they didn't know what was going on up here. So to them, you just had all kinds of issues or perhaps were even possessed by demons. And so this guy is really really the picture of someone who deserves, deserves to be ostracized by the community. So get this. Mark last shared with us this encounter between Jesus and this woman who in the eyes of the Jews and Pharisees was completely worthless, about as antithetical to God's people as you can get. And now Mark is showing us how Jesus is encountering this guy who is possibly even worse in the eyes of his own people than this Syrophoenician woman last week was in the eyes of the Jews. And so he has bounced from one outcast months later, a hundred miles of walk, and Mark shows us in this confrontation with another one. 
And so here's this man, this outcast, who has inexplicably been brought before Jesus. It could have been because he had friends that cared about him. They thought that maybe Jesus could heal him, and so they took him and brought him to Jesus. It could have been his family. It could have been somebody who simply was trying to set Jesus up as a test, and so they get this guy who has no idea what's going on because he can't hear, he can't speak, and they throw him in front of Jesus and say, okay, what can you do with this one? All right, I don't know what brought him there. I think the text is clear that he was brought. He, he wasn't volunteering himself. But he's in front of Jesus now. They implore Jesus to lay his hand on him to heal him. So what does Jesus do? Does he simply will for this man's healing and heal him? Oh, well, no. Could he have done that? Well, absolutely. And so the fact that he could have but didn't tells us that there's a reason behind that. I think that Jesus shifted gears here because he knew his actions could speak louder than words. His physical actions, not just the action of, of willing for this guy's healing. And so this guy can't communicate. He's standing before Jesus, who's this weird Jewish guy from the other side of the lake. And Jesus communicates with this guy in a language that this man understands. Sign language, if you will. Now, any of us who have kids have done this, right? I mean, I have a one-year-old daughter, Gracie, who's kind of clumsy. She likes to fall off of things. It's probably because I'm teaching her to jump off them. Might be a correlation, might not. But when she falls off the sofa and she starts to cry, what do I do? Well, I pick her up and I say, Gracie, I know that your brain is telling you that you're injured, but you only weigh 25 pounds. And the physics behind this say that you can't sustain a serious injury falling off a height of 21 inches. Therefore, your crying is irrational. It's really unnecessary. I'd like for you to cease immediately. No, I'm not going to tell her that. I mean, I could, but she's not going to get that. She's not going to understand that. What does she understand? She understands that when I hold her against my chest, that what I am telling her is that she's going to be okay. Yeah, I know it hurts. I know that wasn't fun. I know you're scared, but Daddy's here, and you're okay. And so she understands physical language far better than she understands anything that I could articulate. And we've seen the same thing with Jesus here. So he's taking this guy off to the side, removes him from the hustle and bustle of the crowd. We know that they're not completely isolated. There are some witnesses present watching this. But Jesus is telling this guy and just removing him from the crowd, hey, you're special enough for me to devote attention specifically to you. You, this Gentile guy, people think that you're nuts. They think that you might be demon-possessed. You can't hear, you can't talk, you can't function. You're a loser in the eyes of those around you. I use the term sarcastically. And so Jesus says, no, you deserve my attention. So now it's just me and you. Yeah, we've got some people watching this, but, but I'm here with you. And so what does Jesus do? He puts his fingers into this guy's ears. All right, now, I don't know where you are in any of this, but I'm not a fan of strangers putting their fingers in my ears. All right, I'm not so big a fan of my own family putting their fingers in my ears. I'll tolerate that. If one of you puts your fingers in my ears, I'm going to be like, ha, 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 yeah, funny, funny. If it's a wet willy, then the flesh here is going to take a few steps backwards in sanctification, if you know what I'm saying. All right, I don't like my ears to be messed with. And Jesus takes this guy, can't hear him, can't speak, and puts his fingers in. And so what is he doing there? He's telling this guy, I know. All right, I know that your ears don't work right. No, you're not crazy. You're not possessed. You're not worthless. You're not garbage. Your problem is you can't hear. I know what your problem is. 
And then he gets a little bit more weird and he spits. And scholars say that when Jesus spits here and touches his tongue, that what he's doing is he's actually putting his own spit on this guy's tongue. All right, now if I've got a problem with the wet willy, you can imagine how this right here would go over with me. But the first century Mediterranean world thought that there was some level of medicinal help in human saliva. And so I don't know if Jesus was doing this to bolster this guy's faith, to make this guy realize, oh, okay, he's going to fix me. I don't know what Jesus' motivation was. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't stop and explain to people, now here's why I'm doing this. But he's definitely speaking through his actions, and I think that he's just trying to affirm in this guy's mind, okay, Jesus knows my problem, he knows my ears don't work, he knows my tongue doesn't work, but he's doing these things that I think are going to fix me. And so perhaps he was just building this Gentile's level of faith to the point where it would be effective, rather than just coming out of the blue and and saying, be healed, and the guy not really knowing what's going on. But Jesus doesn't just identify this guy's problem and leave. All right, that's, that's like the first half of the gospel. Yeah, you've all sinned. Have a nice day. All right, so Jesus isn't just going to point out this guy's shortcomings. He's not going to simply identify the problem and walk away. Mark tells us that he looks up to heaven and he sighs. Now, this isn't a sigh of frustration. Okay, this isn't Jesus saying, how many more of these people am I going to have to deal with? I just put my fingers in his ears. Come on. All right, it's not that Jesus is saying, okay, the game's going to start here in a little bit. I need to wrap things up. (sighs) I hate people. All right, this isn't what's going on here. All right, this isn't a sigh of frustration. It isn't a sigh of, of agitation and anger. The word that Mark here uses is the same one that Paul uses in Romans 8 when he's talking about how oftentimes we pray through this inner groanness that we can't even put words into. Sometimes the Spirit does it for us. All right, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in such a state of desperation before God that you, I mean, you, you don't even try to put words to it? It's just that, <sighs> help. I mean, when your prayer can't even articulate itself in words, you know that it's powerful stuff. And I'm pretty sure that that's what we're seeing in Jesus here is he is so overcome by this guy's affliction. He is so connected to this guy. His compassion is so great for this guy that everyone else thinks he's an outcast that it just comes out in his spirit and all he can do is sigh about it. But then he speaks. Yeah, Jesus touches this guy. He puts his fingers in his ears, touches his tongue. But when he speaks and he looks up to his father, he's letting this guy know, okay, I'm not healing you physically. All right, it's bigger than this. And he looks up and he sighs, and then he says this Aramaic word, Ephatha. Try to pronounce that later. It's not fun. It means be opened. So Jesus looks at his Father. He sighs within his spirit. says, be opened. And Mark tells us that his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Our perfect Savior healed this man perfectly. And what happens when the miraculous power of God is put on display for people to see? They can't shut up about it, all right? Jesus asked them to. He said, don't tell anyone. All right, you're not getting the full story here. I'm not just simply a miracle worker. This thing is so much bigger than me just showing up and healing people. So don't don't tell people yet because the story's not complete. But the more he charged them, the more zealously, Mark says, that they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he's done all things well. 
He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So explain to me the irony in this crowd of Gentiles making a couple of statements that are clearly identifying Jesus as the Messiah when Jesus' own disciples still didn't get that. So let me explain what I mean here. I don't think that they were trying to be theologically precise when these Gentiles said that Jesus does all things well. But if you remember according to John 1, back in the beginning during creation, when God is creating everything, He's doing it through Jesus. And as He looks at everything that He creates, what does He say about it? It's very good. Of course, Jesus does all things well. This guy didn't need speech therapy. He didn't have to learn the function of of syntax, of vocabulary, and grammar. When he is healed, he is healed perfectly. Jesus doesn't do anything halfway. But then they said something that I believe is at the heart of this passage. They said he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So there's a couple of things going on here that deserve our close attention. All right, the first is this. Prophecy in the middle of all of these Gentiles, because Jesus is away from the Jewish crowd now, But prophecy concerning the Messiah is being fulfilled here in this group of Gentiles. 700 years approximately before this occasion happened, Isaiah penned this prophecy, talking about the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 35, he said, Then, when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so besides actually seeing Jesus healing this deaf guy, this mute guy, how do I know that this is an allusion back to Isaiah 35? I know because of the vocabulary that Mark uses. Because the word that he uses to describe this guy with a speech impediment isn't the same word that the Gentiles use that say that Jesus healed the the mute. Mark uses a word that's so rare that this is the only place in the New Testament it's found. It's magilalas. All right, and it means to speak with a speech impediment or, or something of that nature. It's only used once. Greek word, once in the Greek New Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew, so it's fair to say that Mark is using a word that's not found anywhere else in Scripture. But I can tell you where it is found, and that's found in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was commonly used in Jesus' day. And so in Isaiah 35, when Isaiah talks about the Messiah healing the mute, we find the word magilalas. And so Mark is intentionally using a word that you could only find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, showing his people, showing the readers of the New Testament, this is being fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. And so Messianic prophecy concerning the Messiah is being fulfilled through this Gentile. But why? Why would Jesus do this? And so I know that many of you haven't been here in the past few weeks, but as we've watched Jesus coming through the book of Mark, we saw him display his divinity, his power over creation in the feeding of the 5,000. We saw his divinity and the fact that only God can walk on water. We saw Jesus walking on water. We saw that the God who was once far from us is now united to us. We see that Jesus confronts the Pharisees because they were like, well, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? They're going to make themselves unclean. And Jesus says, no, you can't eat anything that makes you unclean, but it's what you've got inside that makes everything that comes out unclean. Jesus said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Last week when Jesus was talking to this Syrophoenician woman 
who was as ugly as could be on the outside, she was inwardly exhibiting faith that astonished Jesus. Yes, now you're getting it. So as we follow Mark's train of thought, as we follow the Messiah in action, the last few weeks, Jesus has been redefining the how of salvation. Because the Jews thought it was about attaining or keeping your own righteousness. They thought that it was about their obedience to the law, but Jesus said, no, you don't need to obey better. You need a heart transplant. It's not about trying to earn favor with God through actions. You can't. That's why you need the Messiah. Only He can do that for you. And so Jesus redefined the how of salvation, and I think that what we're looking at today is Jesus really beginning to shine light on the who of salvation. Because remember, up to this point, the the common conception at the time was that Jesus was only for his, His people. Excuse me. And so now I want to fast forward a little bit. We're going to get a little weird. We're going to leave Mark. But I want to fast forward a little bit so that we can look back onto this occasion with some hindsight, which is clearly what Mark's readers could do because they're reading this some 25 years after it happens. And so I want to be able to equip us to look back on this. If you fast forward a few years, perhaps not even two years, we see that Jesus goes to the cross, that he is crucified, that he is killed, that he is buried on the third day, rises from the tomb, he is seen from hundreds of witnesses, ascends back into heaven, and then we find his followers on the day of Pentecost in the upper room just kind of chilling out. Because Jesus said, no, I've got a mission for you, but you're not going to do that until the Spirit comes. Because that's when we begin to see the regenerative mission of the Holy Spirit, creating new things out of people. And so the Holy Spirit comes, fills these men, reveals himself in miraculous works, and we're able to see these oftentimes faithless followers of Christ become fearless proclaimers of the gospel. The ones who had run from the cross because they didn't want to be associated with Jesus were now boldly proclaiming the cross, even at the expense of losing their life. But, but you only see this through the Jewish followers of Christ. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit befell those in the upper room, that was a group of Jews. And yes, while they went out and they spread the gospel, and it went everywhere because they were able to speak in these tongues that people could understand, the work of the Holy Spirit at that point was relegated only to Jewish followers of Christ. But it's only a handful of years before we find this encounter in Acts chapter 10. Go ahead and flip over there. As you flip to Acts 10, let me build the context a little bit. Peter is now in the home of Cornelius, and he has just finished laying out the gospel. He is explaining to this Gentile with his Gentile friends, his Gentile family, exactly what had transpired a couple of years earlier on the cross. He talked about the death of Christ, why he died, what was accomplished through it, the resurrection. And then we pick it up, and I'm sorry to cut the context out of this, but we pick it up in verse 44, and we find that while Peter is still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, in other words, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And this is blowing fuses left and right because the Jewish Christ followers are like, oh my goodness, 
the Gentiles have the Holy Spirit. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit isn't just for us, but it's also on the Gentiles. And even Paul affirmed in Romans 1, he's like, yeah, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. First, the power of Christ unto those who believe, to the Jew first, definitely, but also to the Greek, to the Gentiles. And so what we're seeing in play after the cross, at the cross, before the cross, is that the redemptive mission of Christ was never to be exclusively for Israel. Was it for Israel? Definitely. At the exclusion of the Gentiles? Never. The good news is good news to all who believe. Not just those who are descendants of Abraham. Not just those like me that have not Jewish. It's for everybody who believes. And so we find Jesus in Mark chapter 7 opening the ears, little symbolism here going on, opening the ears to these Gentiles and revealing to them the good news isn't just for my people. Good news is good news for all people. Which is why Jesus says, go into the world, proclaim the gospel to every person. Jesus opening the ears of this non-Jew is screaming that the gospel is good news for non-Jews. And I don't think the healing of this guy's tongue was accidental either. I think that there's a little bit more symbology. Especially when you look back at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has his confrontation with God, who John tells us was Jesus. Isaiah, the first thing he realizes is his own sinfulness, which is most readily obvious through his speech. Remember this? He said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then the angel took the burning coal and symbolically cleansed him. Jesus is fixing the speech. He's healing the mouth of this Gentile. And I believe that what he's doing there is he's saying the forgiveness that I'm extending to the Gentiles, the healing that I am bringing to the Gentiles is every bit as forgiven and healing as it is for my people. It's not about Jews. It's about whosoever believes. It's about not just one area of the world, but it's about the world. And we're seeing this in play here Years before Jesus even goes to the cross. Years before it happens, Jesus is screaming loud and clear, I'm not just here to redeem Israel. I'm here to redeem for myself a people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation, which includes you and you and you and Charlottesville and Waynesboro. It's a people from every people group. And Jesus is shedding light on this years before he even goes to the cross. This is our journey marker. If we could sum this entire message up into one sentence, it would be the glorious gospel of God's grace is global. And so there are some truth statements that I want to drill into your head. Truths that can radically transform us. 2,000 years later as a church. The first is this. Gentile inclusion into the people of God was always God's plan. All right, There is no plan B for a sovereign God who does what God wants to. All right, we're not an afterthought. We're not this experiment that God decided to try one day. Gentile inclusion into the family of God was always the plan. Yes, to the Jews first, but also to the Greek, to us. And so years before he even went to the cross and Jesus is demonstrating that I'm here for more than just my people, Jesus is demonstrating his love for us. Because we are that deaf guy. 
We are that mute that God has called out and opened our ears and healed us and forgiven us and saying now, I love you every bit as much as I could possibly love my own people. You're not an afterthought. God planned for you. Planned for you to be here. Secondly, I want us to realize that no one is beyond the reach of God. No one. This guy, in the eyes of his own people, you couldn't get much worse than him. Not right in the head, might have a demon, social outcast, and Jesus says, no, no, watch this. This is the guy that I'm going to heal. And so you could be sitting there saying, man, okay, you're saying that Jesus' love is for me, but I don't think that's possible because I know how wicked I am. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how wicked you are. That's why I'm here. Jesus is saying, that's why I bore my Father's wrath on the cross for sin was because you can't do that. You can't be clean enough to gain God's approval. And so whether you're a mass murderer or just somebody who took a pack of bubble gum from the grocery store, you're still in God's sight wicked. You can't gain righteousness through your performance. And there's no one, no one who is further than the gracious reach of God. Look at Paul. Paul killed Christians. Anybody here done that? All right, so until you've persecuted the church, you can't claim that you've done too much for God to save you. All right, Paul removes that from us. We don't have that right. The thief on the cross, who in almost his dying breath sees the light and says, remember me, and Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise today. We don't have the right, we don't have the ability to say that God can't love me. Because there are people in Scripture that are far more unlovable than we could ever be, and yet God clearly pours out His love to people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Salvation was never conditioned upon our ability to live perfectly. It's always been conditioned on our ability to say, okay, God, I can't do this, but I'm trusting Christ to be my Savior. And so third, and in closing, church, we need to realize that there is a world of lost and hurting people everywhere around us that are going to stay that way, that are going to stay hopeless, that are going to stay miserable, that are going to stay lost and dead in their sins until they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what are we doing to get that gospel out there? How do we have any hope of spreading the fame of God to our neighbors and nations if we're too scared to open our mouths and just simply talk about what God has done for us? You don't have to be a Ph.D. theologian. All you need to be able to do is say, this is who I was before God saved me, this is how I came to faith in Christ, and this is what God is doing to me now. And every one of us in here that follow Christ have that story, right? And so it's a simple matter of praying for boldness, praying for wisdom, praying for opportunity to share the good news. You say, well, Richard, I'm I'm scared. And it's scary, okay? Going out on a limb and sharing your faith with somebody that's possibly going to mock you and laugh at you is scary. So you say, how do I get boldness? How am I supposed to come out of my shell? Well, what did we see in the text? When these people saw the power of God on display, they couldn't stop talking about it. We see that all through Scripture. And so if you want to be bold, if you want to be outgoing, if you want to be vibrant in in the sharing of your faith, wrap your mind around what it is that God has done in you, and it's going to come out. The more entrenched into the gospel we become, the more it's going to leak out of who we are. So that you no longer even have to pray for occasions to share your faith. You're going to find yourself doing it naturally as an outflow of the gratitude that you have for the recognition that God has saved you who did nothing to earn it. 
And so it always comes back to embracing the gospel. The gospel saves. The gospel outwardly sanctifies. The gospel is the driving motivation of anything we could ever do as God's people. And so as our band plays, we're going to give you the opportunity to talk to God. We're going to give you a few moments to just in the, in the privacy of your seat, whether you're sitting, standing, singing, or talking to Walt or myself in the back, we're going to give you the chance to talk to God and express your gratitude for His saving you. Perhaps pray for an opportunity this, this week to share the good news. The fact that Christ came not just for His own people, but Christ has come for people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. We've got to get that message out. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, your action item is even simpler. Trust Him. Trust Jesus to be sufficient for you. Trust Him as your only hope of salvation. Cling to the Gospel. Quit relying on yourself. Let go of yourself and say, I will trust Christ. So Father, as we pray this morning, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the picture that we see through this encounter between Jesus and this deaf-mute, where Jesus goes far away from His own people and He opens up ears and He heals speech and He performs miracles and, and He is saying through His actions, I'm not just here for Israel. I'm not just here for those born of Abraham. But I'm here for anyone who would embrace me as Savior. And so, Father, that's our invitation this morning. If there's those sitting here even now that have not removed their trust from themselves and placed it onto your Son. I pray that that would happen. Lord, I pray you would open their eyes, that you would show them not just who they are. Don't just show us the problem, Lord, but also point us to the cross. For those of us here who are following Christ, Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness in our gospel proclamation. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that could not possibly shut up about the gospel because we are so grateful for what has been done for us. Father, we're grateful that it's not about rules. It's not about trying to earn brownie points. It's not about a system of religion that hinges upon our actions to gain your favor. But it's all about your Son who died for us so that whoever believes has new life, has the righteousness of Christ on them, in them, so that you see us now, not as sinners who are simply saved by grace, but you see us as your children. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing through us. We ask that your light would shine ever so brightly in the communities around us. It's in Christ that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.